you haven't already, check out Necronomapod on CastBox, a top podcast app on iOS and Android with more than 28 million users worldwide. CastBox has a brand new way to find content you'll love. Just enter a keyword or phrase and the app searches the show titles and transcripts of every single episode to deliver exactly what you're looking for. Download CastBox today and see for yourself. What do hypnotizing cats, selling yachts, Tom Cruise, and black magic have in common? They're all mentioned in part one of our three-part series on Scientology. To get started, today we take a deep dive into the life of L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. We'll attempt to separate fact from fiction as we discuss his biography as it's told by Scientology and as it's told by Russell Miller, whose biography about Hubbard is vehemently denied by Scientology. We'll discuss Hubbard's upbringing and experiences, as well as what led him to creating a new science called Dianetics, which would lead to him eventually forming the religion, or cult, known as Scientology. I'm Mike. I'm Ian. And I'm Dave. If you thought Mormonism was the dumbest religion to come out of North America, stick around. L. Ron Hubbard has a message for Joseph Smith. Hold my beer. This is Necronomapod. Well, I think the problem is that um, Hubbard, throughout his life, was... Um, I'm afraid to tell you that a confidence trickster, a liar, and a charlatan. Nothing he said about his whole life was true. I mean, he, d- he didn't grow up on a ranch covering a quarter of an Montana. He wasn't the youngest Eagle Scout. He didn't um, travel the East learning the secrets of life from wise men and gurus. He wasn't an explorer. He wasn't a, a war hero. It just goes on and on and on. Nothing the church said about him was true, I'm afraid. Uh, all I'm saying is that the founder of Scientology was a man who, who could not be trusted. He was an extraordinary man, an amazingly charismatic, extraordinary individual. But the fact is that he lied about himself for the whole of his life. All right, guys. Top five favorite Tom Cruise movies. In celebration of the Scientology episode. <laughs> the most well-known no. Scientologist. Is he involved like in Scientology? It. He might have been a fringe member or something way back when. I'm not sure. I had not heard that. Okay. Mm. Who wants to go first? Well, Ian asked the question. Dave, you want to go or you want me to go? Um, I'm going to go. Okay. I can almost assure you, you will not have any movies that are on my list. Your list will be atrocious. People are going to think my list is an abomination, but I can assure you, I fucking love these five movies. Is Cocktail on your list? I don't even think I've ever seen that. <laughs> okay. Number one. Number one. Are you going in order? No, no order. Well, you said number one, and you have a habit of giving your first, like, blowing your load at the start. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, now can we have sex? (laughs) Well, it's already over with, so. No particular order. Risky Business, The Last Samurai, The Firm, Edge of Tomorrow, and Taps. I have never seen one of those movies. Of course you haven't. (laughs) Nope. I bet you've seen Days of Thunder, though, a hundred times. Number one on my list. Of course it is. I guess my mind is Days of Thunder, (laughs) Top Gun. Tropic Thunder, Rain Man, and Rock of Ages. Oh, we're all over the place then. Yep. Because mine is The Outsiders, Interview with a Vampire, Rain Man, Jerry Maguire, and Risky Business. So you had one of mine and one of Dave's. Mm -hmm. It's good. I didn't really consider Outsiders a Tom Cruise movie, so I left it out, but I'm with you on that one. But he had a small role in it, right? So same with like uh, Tropic Thunder. He's barely in that. Yeah. Did we name every Tom Cruise movie? We named Except a bunch cocktail. of them. <laughs> I thought you would have picked like those Jack Reacher ones. Isn't he in those? Or the movies are not great. 
Well, Mission Impossible, or but Mission we didn't pick Impossible. any of those. I've never seen any of those, to be honest. They're good. Okay. Well, that was an okay list. We covered everything. <laughs> yeah. So between all of us, we're going to upset some people, and people are like, hell yeah, that's right. You want to do Travolta movies, too, while we're at it? I don't think I could oh. name five John Travolta movies. I could name two off the top of my head. It would be Grease and... Uh, Pulp Fiction? Oh, yeah, Pulp Fiction, yeah. Urban Cowboy? I don't know that one. I've seen Pulp Fiction. Swordfish? I've seen Michael. Oh, the angel? That was good. <laughs> um... I think I've seen Grease, but I don't remember. Staying Alive, Saturday Night Fever. Yeah. Welcome back, back Cotter. That wasn't a movie, though. Up your, up your nose <laughs> with a rubber hose. <laughs> I was thinking about bringing Mafia Mike back later on to the show today. <laughs> Inviting him in. We haven't seen him in, since Amityville. Uh, well, he did um, He did the, the L. Ron Hubbard movie. Oh, of course he did. Yeah. What the, the hell is the, the title? Battle sh- Battlefield Earth. Yeah. So for this is a real question. John Travolta is a Scientologist? Yeah, he's oh, one of yeah. their top. I did not know. Yeah, he's one of their. Spoiler b- alert! Mike didn't know something about the topic. Are we going to talk about Battlefield Earth at some point? I it, believe in nice part three, part, maybe. Yeah, part three. Yeah, definitely in part three. We should probably let people know this is going to be a three parter. Yeah, it's going to be a very long three parter. So stick with us. It's an interesting story. Watch oh, Jonestown was three parts. Yeah, and this is a little more in depth actually than Jonestown. How dare you? No, <laughs> I'm just <laughs> saying this is a deep one. Jonestown is the reason this podcast exists. It's very true. And you got you're you're giving uh, Scientology more of a story. We'll see with part two when you get into Dianetics and Scientology, the belief system of Scientology itself. It's so confusing, and it's not like you have to be smart to get into it. It's purposely confusing because you're not supposed to be able to figure it out. I mean, it's just it's really uh, made up pseudoscience garbage. Yeah, yeah okay. it's, it's very, uh, it's very all over the place. Can't I think wait. the thing about other, we only think that this is a wacky religion because it's so new. You, you grow up with Christianity and all these other religions, so they seem normal to you. This one's kind of new, so it seems out there and wacky. But you know, their beliefs aren't any more strange than any other religion, in my humble opinion. I think that's a fair statement. I don't know a lot about what Scientology believes, though, so I'm excited to kind of learn and see. The problem with Scientology is. And we'll get into it with Di- and when we get to Dianetics is how they claim to be able to heal mental illnesses and physical ailments with the belief system, with the auditing and the e-meter sure. and all that stuff. That's where it gets a little like But that's a little no different dangerous. than Ernest Angley putting his hands on you were speaking in tongues. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I command the power of the Holy Spirit. Heal. <laughs> Yeah, the belief system's not not as uh, I mean, it's wacky, but it's not like um, it's not anything different, you know. Yeah, exactly. as far as craziness, we know who L. Ron Hubbard is. Regard, you know what I mean. And like, if you don't know who he is, you're about to learn. <laughs> right. But we know who L. Ron Hubbard is. There's people in our lifetime that have talked to him, and, and you know right. what I mean. Like if Jesus was a real person, let's just presuppose that That's Jesus. That's a big if. <laughs> if he was real. <laughs> or if Muhammad or someone was real, we would know something about, you know, I'm sure there would be something in Jesus's life that you could talk about and someone would have a different opinion of yeah. something he was doing. So he like, yeah, I was there that day. He didn't walk any fucking water. All right. right, right. The wine was there that he didn't turn water into it. He, it's nonsense. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's really interesting, what's fascinating about this stuff with L Ron Hubbard is that, you know, people, like Leah Remini and um, 
you know, just a, a lot of people that have defected throughout the years. They all they hate David Miscavige. They hate the whole you know cutting off the family members thing, like all the bad stuff about it. But they all, almost all of them refuse to say anything bad about L. Ron Hubbard. Mm. So they like they they still appreciate the core tenets of of the religion itself, just not what it's evolved into. Yeah, it's almost like talk. It's like say someone talks shit on a church. But they didn't. But they still believe in God, and they don't want to talk shit on Jesus himself. Right. And it's very strange the uh, how indoctrinated L. Ron Hubbard is into this whole uh, yeah. into this whole story. Let's get into it. All right, Scientology. It's probably the most well-known religion, solely based on its controversy and clear signs of it being a cult even though it's recognized as a religion in the United States and many other countries. But I know Australia has, has shut it down, didn't want anything to do with it. The UK said no. So even the penal colony will not accept this nonsense. <laughs> they wanted absolutely nothing to do with this. Right, for them. right off the bat. Of course not. <laughs> they, were well, drinking, I- they were drinking Fosters that day because that's all they drink over there. It's well documented. And they decided, fuck this. We're not accepting it. Good for them. Yeah. What does Foster's mean, Dave? It means Australian <laughs> phobia. <laughs> well, and, and even nailed the, it. The story in this country of how they got their religion exemption status is ridiculous in and of itself. Yeah. Yep. That'll be um, it's a teaser for part part three. Three. Yeah. So it's a religion that boasts its high-profile celebrity members, with Tom Cruise being the face of the organization. We talked about John Travolta. Who else? Do we have a famous list or no? I know Beck is a sign big one. Really? Yeah. Isn't uh Kirstie Alley? Yes. She's and she's very aggressive too. Really? Yeah. Mm. Who's the lady from um Forty Year Old Virgin that played his girl this girlfriend? You know who I'm talking like about? Like the one he actually falls in love with? Yeah. I, I don't know her actual name. She's a big one and her son. His name is Tommy Davis. He's their spokesperson really, for a long time and still currently is. And he's a little fucking weasel. If you ever watch anything with him, man, he is the most punchable face ever. <laughs> and he's a, he is a piece of shit, man. Wow. He is so hmm. aggressive. We're going to get fired up, Ian, in these <laughs> next three weeks. I love it. But yeah, and then that's, they both, and L. Ron Hubbard is quoted throughout history saying, all you need is one celebrity. Get one celebrity and, you know. You're good to go. So if we just get one celebrity to give us a retweet or something, goddamn. Yeah. Is it asking that much for Justin Bieber to retweet us one time? <laughs> Justin Bieber. Or Christian genius billionaire Kanye West? Sure. Yeah, I'll take that. I, I would, would take Justin Bieber, too. Yeah. I would take anybody with all those followers. So behind the celebrity image and, and the life-changing claims with the whole like getting rid of mental illness and things like that, Scientology has a really dark side to it. There's accounts of mental and physical abuse, harassment of critics and former members, and their finances are just some of the controversy that that surrounds them. The church is currently ran by their mysterious leader, David Miscavige, but to fully understand Scientology, you have to understand L. Ron Hubbard, because this whole thing is just an extension of his mind. That's uh, 100% true, I think. Yeah, this is... The guy that wrote the book, Going Clear, I think he he said it best when he said that um, this whole story is L. Ron Hubbard trying to self-diagnose and self-do therapy on himself in this pro- and then just took a bunch of people along with him. Because he could have, like this guy said, he could have taken the money and, and ran at any point. He didn't. He continued to work on this and work on it constantly. 
I think he will see he's just a very um a very sick individual that this whole thing is just an extension of of his thought process. His biography is controversial to to say the least. Barefaced Messiah by author Russell Miller is probably one of the most complete and accurate biographies of Hubbard. Scientology refutes everything in the book and aggressively used lawsuits in an attempt to stop the book from being published. They have their own version of Hubbard's life that they tell, which comes from Hubbard himself. And so for part one, we're going to use both and try and get to the, the truth about L. Ron Hubbard. Did you read this whole book? Did not. It's very long. It's just over 500 <laughs> pages. Sounds like an emo band, Barefaced Messiah. Yeah, I can see that. Thanks for coming out, everyone. We're Barefaced Messiah. <laughs> well, they they got the book to not be published in the U.S. by suing the shit out of this guy. It was they block completely got it blocked. God damn. Yeah, it's in the. You can get it. Well, I got it online, but you can. Uh, they published it in the U.K. Mm. So Lafayette Ronald Hubbard was born on March thirteenth, nineteen eleven, in Tilden, Nebraska, to Ladora May, who was a teacher, and Harry Ross Hubbard, who was a naval officer. In nineteen thirteen, they relocated to Helena, Montana, and according to Scientology's biography, Hubbard lived with his rich grandfather, who owned a ranch that took up a quarter of the state. So now we're into their version of events, right? Yes, this okay. is this is their version. Their being Scientology's version. Yes, yeah. which is Hubbard's version. So Hubbard's not necessarily version. 100% accurate. <laughs> right. And I think in the interest of fairness, we're going to provide both stories. Yeah. And then you, the listener, can decide what you believe. That's a great idea, Mike. <laughs> you can filter through the bullshit and tell us what you think. Supposedly, his grandfather owned a ranch that took up a quarter of the whole state. When he was six years old, he met a Blackfoot Indian medicine man who saw potential in him and made him an official blood brother of the tribe. On top of being wealthy, his grandfather was a sea captain, and since he wasn't there most of the time, the work of the ranch was left to Hubbard, with him being considered a cowboy by the age of 10. He was the original Marlboro man, I, I think I read. <laughs> <laughs> Nine years old, he was puffing uh, Marlboro Reds. After working with his grandfather, Hubbard went back to living with his parents, where his father rejoined the Navy in April 1917 during World War I. On a boat trip to Washington, D.C., Hubbard befriended a naval psychology analyst that went by the nickname Snake. Gotta trust that guy. <laughs> um, Wait, a boat trip to Washington, D.C. from where? Uh, it went through the Panama Canal. From is Montana, Dave. <laughs> Come on. Relax. Panama <laughs> Canal, like up the East Coast? Like in wartime? Weren't the Germans sinking ships off of the East Coast at that time? Never mind. Dave, you're trying to use logic in an <laughs> illogical story here. Quit poking holes in it. So this uh this this snake guy was a personal student of Freud. Of course he was. <laughs> and Snake taught Hubbard all about psychology on this boat trip. <laughs> And stayed friends with him when they got to Washington, D.C., where Snake got Hubbard personal access to the Library of Congress to keep learning. <laughs> really? During this time, Hubbard became the youngest Eagle Scout in history, and his father was stationed in Guam, where they traveled through the East. This young man is very accomplished. <laughs> yeah. Extremely accomplished. I bet he's going to cure cancer pretty soon. Oh, so he can finally make us funny, Dave? <laughs> While he was in China, he met an old magician and a Hindu man who could hypnotize cats. He also lived with... <laughs> I'm the pussy whisperer. Pussy does whatever I tell it to do under hypnosis. 
Now this is the hypnotism I can believe in. Hypnotizing, hypnotizing cats. Yeah, sure. <laughs> he also lived with bandits in Tibet and the warlords of Manchuria. He stayed with tribes and learned the language of the Igorodi people in just one night by a lantern fire. All of this happened before Hubbard even got to high school. He's a genius. <laughs> I think this is Jay Peterman from Seinfeld. <laughs> <laughs> Elaine, I did heroin with the Hutu tribe in the caves of... <laughs> This is so That's ridiculous. about right. That's like the Peterman story. <laughs> Until he buys Kramer stories. Remember right, that one? Right. <laughs> so that's how that's how Hubbard is billed to uh to Scientology. And anything you look at from Scientology, that is that's an accurate description of his childhood. So that's his working childhood. Let's get into his shoot childhood. <laughs> yeah, <now>. right. <laughs> that's his working gimmick. <laughs> that's wrestling speak for that's fake. In reality, Hubbard's childhood was kind of interesting, but nothing really fascinating. He was an only child and was completely loved and spoiled by his family. His grandfather did not own a ranch, and he was not a sea captain. He was actually a veterinarian. Um, (laughs) The Blackfoot tribe would not have engaged with a child outside of their tribe in that way, and especially a white child during this time. And they don't have a blood brother ritual at all. And that's confirmed by the Blackfoot tribe. Interesting. But Scientology confirmed that they do. Right. So just saying. Who's lying here, Mike? Well, I think that's up to the listeners to decide. (laughs) It's not for me to say. His father did rejoin the Navy, but there is no record of any man nicknamed Snake. And everyone in his family said that that was not true. There is no... There was nothing even remotely close to that. You mean they didn't take a boat ride from Montana to Washington, D.C.? <laughs> they did take a boat trip on the Panama Canal. That is for real. They did do that. But there is no record of anybody nicknamed Snake being on that trip or getting L. Ron Hubbard access to the Library of Congress. And teaching him all of psychology. Right. And one night by the fire. Well, and that was uh, a language, right? Wasn't that a language he learned? The Igorodi people? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. The Boy Scouts don't keep records for their achievements, so there's no way to really know if he was the youngest Eagle Scout or not. But I don't, I don't I, know anything about Boy Scouts. Is Eagle Scout like a high rank? The highest thing the I Boy think you could do in the Scouts, yes. And you get it like what, at like age twelve or thirteen, probably. I think that's right. You got to do all kinds of but different it's, levels. And that's I, what age he would have been at this time. But he would have been the youngest. That's what he claims, but there's no way to know. It's could, a working age. Yeah. I'm I'm going to go ahead and confidently say that that is a lie. <laughs> that is not true. What are you basing that on? I, I'm just going to I'm going to take the odds here and say that that is a lie. But the record show that was Ian's <laughs> statement that said that. His father was stationed in Guam and he did travel through China. However, Hubbard's journals through this time are detailed with his just absolute dislike for the Chinese people and are extremely racist. He has some choice slurs for the Chinese people. And one of his things was he specifically did not like the way that they smelled. So, Are you trying to tell me that L. Ron Hubbard might not have been a good person? <laughs> the only thing that he saw positively while he was in China was the Great Wall of China. But all he wrote about it was that if China wanted to make a bunch of money, they should turn it into a roller coaster. <laughs> genius idea at such an early age. Absolutely genius. All right, Dave, on the spot, what's the best name for that roller coaster? <sighs> For the fortune cookie monster. <laughs> All right, perfect. Let's go. The fortune cookie monster. All right. 
You put me on a spot. <laughs> I, mean, I can do in two seconds. All right, sidetrack. I'm not going to make it fast food. I'll make it Chinese food. What's your go-to Chinese food order? And you too, Ian. Sweet and sour pork. General sows chicken. I like that too. Extra spicy. Ooh. I always like the plain, the regular chicken and broccoli. That is disgusting. <laughs> How is that disgusting? <laughs> chicken and broccoli. Broccoli is, is something that they throw in as a garnishment in Chinese food. I it doesn't need to be in the name of it. Broccoli. I mean, broccoli is good. I'm not going to. Yeah. And so they throw whatever that sauce is on it. What do you get? Sweet and sour pork. I don't love sweet and sour. I like mushu pork. It's good. Chicken and broccoli is probably number 500 of the things I would order. Chicken and broccoli is by far the most tasty thing. And then I always get lo mein instead of rice because I don't got time for rice in my life. I like the lo mein. It's good. Do what kind of egg roll? I get veggie egg roll. I just get whatever they give me. I think it's usually the veggie. And whatever they give me, I I take. Yeah, I just take egg roll. No strong feelings on the egg rolls? I like them. Okay. <laughs> I'm a, yeah, I'm a fan. All right, thanks for working really on this one, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on. I feel like your taste of Chinese food is pretty bad, though, if you order Chinese or uh, chicken and broccoli chicken and is broccoli. the tastiest thing I've ever had from Chinese food. That sounds terrible. I get the same thing every single time. I do too. I don't. I don't stray away from the general says extra spicy. Like I've never too. had extra spicy. I would try that. They just pour a bunch of all those peppers and shit on there. It's good. Very I tasty. would eat that. Yeah. Is that it on China? Yeah, that's about all I got. (laughs) We got that, and Dave named their uh, roller coaster the Fortune Cookie Monster. Which is dumb, because fortune cookies are completely American and have nothing to do with China, but that's the first thing I thought of. That's what we're going with, then. How about Hong Kong? Hong Kong. I put you on the spot. I got nothing. I'm sorry, I got nothing. It's all right. We're going with that. New t-shirt. Fortune Cookie Monster. (laughs) And it's like the Great Wall roller coaster, but it goes into the Cookie Monster's mouth. Since you said Cookie Monster, it's not bad. Well, going back to the to the roller coaster, I don't think we can put Cookie Monster on a shirt and sell it. Might Except be to call it something else. Yeah, which you already named it. Anyways, we're all way off subject. Back to the roller coaster thing for a minute. It's interesting that at 12, 13 years old, while he's seeing the world in this, like this is supposed to be like this great opportunity to see the world, he's in, he's immediately thinking of how they could make their country better by making money. Mm-hmm. His mind is already on, on finances at this point. It's a good point. Yeah, it's interesting. Once back in the U.S., Hubbard enrolled at Helena High School, where he claimed to be the president of the school newspaper, but that is not true. He only contributed towards it. He said he left high school because he got into a fight with another student and almost killed the kid. But it is confirmed on May 11th, 1928, that Hubbard was expelled from school for failing grades. And he left Helena again to rejoin his parents in Guam in June of 1928. So he's already starting like, to sound like a con man. He is probably the greatest con man that the United States has ever, that has ever existed in this country, I would say. Which is weird because Scientology is so believable. <laughs> While in Guam again, he wrote dozens of short stories and failed the Naval Academy entrance exam. In September 1929, he enrolled at the Suavely Preparatory School in Manassas, Virginia to get ready for a second try at the Naval exam. During this time at school, he claimed to have eye troubles and was rejected from the Naval exam. In his later document titled Affirmations that we'll get into, Hubbard wrote, quote, your eyes are getting progressively better. They became bad when you use them as an excuse to escape the Naval Academy. So, a little self hypnosis. Yeah, yeah. That's, and we're gonna get into that in this episode. And that's one of the most fascinating parts of this of this whole story to me is the the affirmations documents. 
he was sent to Woodward School for Boys in Washington, D.C. to qualify for admission to George Washington University. He did graduate from school in June 1930 and was accepted to the university the following September. Regardless of what Hubbard and Scientology claim, transcripts show that he failed multiple courses during college, specifically atomic physics, even though he and Scientology both claim that he was a nuclear physicist. <laughs> of course they do. Well, yeah. He's a loser because I aced atomic physics in college. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what did you write your dissertation on? I wrote my dissertation on um, Boone's Farm. <laughs> And what made it so good and how atoms and physics were a part of what, why it tasted so good. And molecules. Molecules and electrons and neutrons and <laughs> protons and all the tons. Sounds intriguing. All the tons. I gave a hell of a dissertation. <laughs> I have a doctorate in atomic physics. Yeah. Yeah. I don't brag about it very much, so. Just keep that one. Keep it close. Kayfabe that. <laughs> You're a humble guy, so I get I that. try to be. Humility is a virtue. I, my other dissertation was on humility. <laughs> and like I said, regardless of what they claim and how well he did in college and stuff, in September 1931, he was put on probation for his grades. And then again in April of 1932. Well, he seems like a bit of adult, right? Y yeah. Well, I mean, he's, he's really intelligent. I, I would say he's really intelligent based on hmm. the the con artistry that he's able to do and, and, and things that, like that. Is he just like a charismatic guy? Very, like char very charismatic. So he's like a con man who's not really book smart then? Like he knows how to read people and how to like play off people? I think it's, um, I think he's like any other cult leader, just failure after failure until you fall into mm. what you're, the, the con that you're good at. Other than, like we said, other than Jim Jones, Jim Jones is kind of like the the all-star cult leader or whatever, I meaning well, he was successful. Jim Jones had Mr. Muggs keeping him in track. It's true. On track and it's very true. Running the show, but Mr. Muggs was pulling the puppet strings on everything. I a hundred percent believe that theory. Yeah. And their mascot for Scientology is not great. They had two Corgi puppies that we'll get into in part two or three. Really? It's going to be a new Necronomapod shirt. Yeah, they're not that cool. Yeah. But you would have never said that about Mr. Muggs either. No, Mr. Muggs we has been cool got, forever. We got him over. Yeah, I didn't expect him to be that cool. <laughs> in 1932, he did organize a boat trip to the Caribbean with fellow students as an exploration adventure to record scientific discoveries. His flyers for this trip specifically said, quote, to explore and film pirate strongholds and bivouacs of the Spanish main and, quote, collect whatever one collects for exhibits in museums. I don't know what they collect, but we'll collect some of that. <laughs> Well, he, he organized this thing. I mean, kids, other college students and stuff, they were pumped about it. He, he got it all together, got the money and all, you know, got this whole ship lined up and stuff. But it was just an absolute total failure. They ran out of money pretty quick and they had to turn around to Baltimore. <laughs> and then Hubbard just never went back to the college after that. That was it for him. So chalk that up as another failure. Yes. But later on, we'll, we'll see too. It's interesting. His lies, like initially you would like see something like this blackfoot tribe thing that he made a lie about and it's like that's fucking what a stupid ass thing to lie about you know but it's like these just build up and they're used for other things you know well and we'll yeah. see where this caribbean lie that it, how successful it was plays in later on so his father was pissed off with all of his failures so he enrolled him for a red cross relief effort on 
October 23, 1932, where Hubbard was sent to Puerto Rico. On his way, he decided to quit the Red Cross and worked as a mineral surveyor. When he returned to the U.S. in February of 1933, he got into the hobby of flying gliders, where he met his future wife, Polly Grubb. Hubbard claimed to be a champion glider, earning the nickname Flash Hubbard, which is kind of true that he was good at gliding, but I would lean to suspect that no one called him Flash Hubbard. He called himself (laughs) Flash (laughs) Hubbard. Flash. Self-proclaimed Flash Uh. Hubbard. I would assume that that is a lie. I only know that Flash reference day from the movie Ted. Oh, you never actually saw Flash Gordon? <laughs> I did not. So great. I did not. But <laughs> that movie's awesome, though. Do you like Ted? Have we talked oh, about it? Oh, I that? love it. It's hilarious. Isn't Ted- that the last movie you went to? When yeah, you- well, the, the lady brought her, her uh, last- six-month-old and uh, started crying <laughs> 10 minutes in the movie, and I yelled at him, and I made him leave. <laughs> They called me an asshole on their way out. <laughs> like, I'm the asshole that brought a six-month-old baby yeah. to this fucking movie and cried the whole time. <laughs> that person's listening. Fuck you. Keep your dumb baby at home. Wow. God damn, pal. Dave doesn't like going to movies. Other people ruin the experience. They do, constantly. People are fucking rude assholes. I don't disagree. I did, couldn't tell you the last movie I went to. Now I'm really I just don't do think. it anymore. Yeah, I don't know. It's been a while. Probably the last Spider-Man, I think. People just talk the whole movie. It's not it's not enjoyable anymore. Like, why do you want to go to a movie I mean, and I've talk had, the whole I've time? I've had plenty of good experiences in the movie theater, but when you do get a bad one, it, it just ruins it. Especially now with how much you pay to go to a movie, you don't want to be sitting next to some schmuck. Yeah. Or they're on their phone with the, the lights, phone, right. they're talking, they're Giggling. bringing fucking kids that don't shut up. <laughs> I've never had that experience stay home. with a kid, though. I've never had that experience. Every time I go, there's a baby. I went to, here's another one. I went to see the remake of My Bloody Valentine like years yeah. ago, and I turned around. They had a newborn in their lap behind me going, <laughs> ah, 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 the whole movie. It's only me. I don't know why it's always me. Was that the 3D version? It was. I just, We saw that, too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, is that a fucking newborn sitting right behind me at the movie theater? <laughs> you turn my bloody Valentine. Did you turn around and say that to them? No, because you get shot these days if you do that. <laughs> oh, too soon, Dave. Too soon. <laughs> so I just stay home. I don't need the aggravation. You just got to call up this guy. He'll get you any movie the day it's released in theaters. Yeah, it's very true. Got a big giant TV in my basement. I don't need to fucking go anywhere. Wow, humble brag. <laughs> So Polly, uh, Polly Grubb and Elron hit it off, and they got married on April 13th, 1933. Polly was pregnant with another man's child when they got married, but she had a miscarriage soon after, and she quickly got pregnant again, and on May 7th, 1934, she gave birth to a son named Lafayette Ronald Jr., who went by the nickname Nibs. Where's that come from? I have no idea. That's a terrible nickname. Yeah. Old Nibs Hubbard. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a guy that works at the lighthouse carrying a pipe around. Hey, there's old Nibs Hubbard. (laughs) Uh, And then their second child, Catherine May, was born on January 15th, 1936. So throughout this period of his life, Hubbard already started his writing career. He became probably the most prolific fiction writer in, in history, just writing an ungodly amount. I mean, it's absurd how much fiction this guy was able to put out. He had six pieces published between 1932 and 1933, but the going rate at that time was a penny per word, so his family was struggling financially. The pulp magazine Thrilling Adventure became the first to publish one of his short stories in February of 1934. 
Hubbard's known for his science fiction novels, but he wrote a ton of different genres, including a lot of westerns. Well, he was a nine-year-old cowboy, so that's understandable. He had a lot of real-life adventure. Exactly. <laughs> his first full-length novel, titled Buckskin Brigades. <laughs> What's so funny? Buckskin Brigades. Speaking of cowboys, would you guys, the three of us, what if we went on like a real-life city slickers? I got to a dude ranch. Yeah. A couple of dudes on a dude ranch. Have you seen City Slickers? Mm-mm. The uh, Billy, Billy Crystal movie? Mm-mm. It's just three guys from New York City. They go on, what is it, a, like a, a cattle drive, right? Yeah, is something that what like, it is? Yeah, something like that. Like, it's it's chaperone, but you essentially just, you ride horses. You're living in, under the stars out west, and you ride horses, and you take cattle from, like, I don't know, one town to the next. And it's like a week-long You two thing. are going to do this? No, all three of us. <laughs> Let's go. I fucking hate riding horses. No, I hate all, every part of it. I just think it'd be funny <laughs> if we could, like, record it. It's like a YouTube series. Necronomapod goes west. Oh, it sounds atrocious. And it does knowing sound that atrocious. Ian and I hate being outside, <laughs> and Dave, I don't think you're one to sleep under the stars. I don't love it, and I don't like riding horses one bit. Yeah, that's not very fun. I could see some funny stuff happening, crushing a bunch of beers and riding horses. We could just, we could <laughs> yeah, just get killed. We could just come here and record some podcasts and crush a bunch of beers. It's true. All right, anyways, go ahead. Hard pass, Mike. Good idea, though. <laughs> just thought you guys wanted to live out buckskin brigades. <laughs> So, so yeah, that that was his first. Uh, that was his first. His first novel, Buckskin Brigade. It was published in 1937. Can you give us the plot line, please? Uh, no. Okay, maybe later. <laughs> but his science fiction career really took off when John under when editor John W. Campbell took Hubbard under his wing. Campbell published Hubbard's stories in magazines The Unknown and Astounding Science Fiction. With Hubbard's stories. Fear, Final Blackout, and Typewriter in the Sky were the, were the first ones. <laughs> Fuck does that mean? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, these aren't like the pulp magazines. They're not like, um, from what I've read online and stuff, reading about, they're not like great literary works or anything. It's not Dickens or. <laughs> yeah. No. All right. <laughs> it was said that Hubbard would write over 100,000 words a month, and that really isn't that much of an exaggeration. Well, at a penny a word, I mean, that's $1,000 a month back then in the 30s during the Depression, right? Well, you got to get somebody to buy it, though, too. Yeah, I guess that's not published word. Yeah. Right. right. But, yeah, I mean, he just would nonstop. There's, like, rumors out there that he had, I, I'm assuming this isn't true, but that he had built, like, his own typewriter that had keys for words that he used all the time. So, like, there was a key for oh. just the and stuff. And Hot I mean, keys in the 30s. Yeah, I mean, who knows? Like, he could have, but... He really did write an insane amount of uh, mm. amount of fiction. He became very well known in the science fiction community and well known with popular uh, authors for the time. Most liked him mainly because his bullshit was fun to listen to. Because I even mean, he was just a good storyteller, and people were just like, "Oh yeah, Hubbard just shooting the shit," you know, whatever. It was fun to hang out with. Yeah, him. but Isaac Asimov absolutely hated his guts; just could not stand Why? him. Well, because Isaac Asimov was a real PhD scientist, and this guy was a fucking clown, probably. Depends on who you ask. (laughs) He was a fake nuclear physicist. (laughs) Did he learn a language in one night, like Hubbard? He had a PhD, I don't know. Still, I have a PhD. My money's on Asimov, I don't know. So you think he just smelled his bullshit from the beginning? That would be my guess. Yeah, I mean, that's what it sounded like. He didn't have those sweet sideburns like Isaac Asimov. (laughs) Things were fucking baller. (laughs) 
In April of 1938, Hubbard underwent a dental procedure and supposedly had a near-death experience due to an allergic reaction to a drug. During this experience, he was inspired to write a book called Excalibur. And this book is debated on whether or not it actually existed because it was never published. And I saw things that said it was only just handwritten by Hubbard. Did you have you ever watched a video of Hubbard speaking? Like he has very bad teeth and gums. Is that a result of this procedure? I, like, it's not easy to watch. He's a disturbing looking person. The one I think you're th- you're talking about where he's wearing the stupid fucking like boat cat hat and shit, like the I've captain's seen a couple hat. Couple of them, but like just his bottom teeth are yeah appear to be rotted, and his gums are I don't know. There's really? only a few. Hard to explain. He's very strange looking. He was only interviewed very f- a few number of times, and they were late. Like the boat one is later in life when the whole Sea okay. Org thing's going down. Yeah. I think that that's probably the one you're talking about because you can really see his teeth in that one. Okay, that's one where he says the guy asks him if he's mad, and he says like, "Oh yes." The where man. he says the off the record something. He goes, "Don't ever use this on the record." Yeah, and, yeah. And says, that was used on the record. Oh yeah, there's a video of it. <laughs> he says something stupid like the man who says that they're claims that they're not mad is mad or something dumb yeah, like that. Right. Regarding Excalibur, Arthur J. Burks was he said that he read the book in 1938 and said that its main theme was just one thing, survival. If Excalibur is real, it's considered to be the precursor to the affirmations document and then diagnetics. When Hubbard told people about Excalibur, he said that the knowledge contained in it would cause, quote, whoever to read it went insane or committed suicide, and said that the last time he had shown it to a publisher in New York, he walked into the office to find out what the reaction was, and the publisher called for the reader. The reader came in with the manuscript, threw it on the table, and threw himself out of a skyscraper (laughs) window. Must have been that good. (laughs) It was too awesome. He couldn't handle it. You can't handle that knowledge. (laughs) Damn. That's something that gets said about Excalibur all throughout this, uh, it's too much, <laughs> this right? whole journey. Yeah. While he was in New York City writing for books, he spent a lot of time in New York City during this time. He wrote to his wife talking about Excalibur. And I just, I really thought this, this quote was really interesting because it kind of came true. Sooner or later, Excalibur will be published, and I may have a chance to get some name recognition out of it so as to pave the way to articles and comments, which are my ideas of writing heaven. Foolishly, perhaps, but determined nonetheless, I have high hopes of smashing my name into history so violently it will take a legendary form even if all books are destroyed. That goal is the real goal as far as I'm concerned. I just like that quote. Of him talking about smashing his name into history so violently. Yeah. With having nothing to do with books. Like, he just wants to be famous. It's pretty damn true. Do you think the religion is the goal at this point, or he hasn't even come up with that yet? Uh, I No, he hasn't even come up with that yet. Yeah, I agree. Like I said earlier, all these lies, they seem really stupid off the bat, and but they all, they all work towards something else. So... All these lies about his childhood and traveling got him a membership with the then prestigious Explorers Club in February of 1940. He attempted to go on an exploration to Alaska, but again, this was a failure like his Caribbean one. The engine on the ship broke down and he didn't have enough money to fix it. So he raised money by writing short stories and working for a local radio station and then eventually made it back to Puget Sound on December 27th, 1940. If you read Scientology stuff about 
about this. This was like this fantastic um, trip to Alaska, and he explored all this shit, and it's just fucking stupid. But he was really doing like morning radio. And- yeah, to make enough money to get back. Uh- Wacky morning yeah, radio. The Buzzer Morning Zoo with yeah. L. Ron Hubbard here in Juneau, Alaska, coming at you. <laughs> Wacky Wednesday. I can't wait to get the soundboard up and running. <laughs> I'm just going to have random. Oots, oots, oots. <laughs> Caller number 10, two uh, free sandwiches to Burger King. <laughs> <laughs> You make me spit my drink out. <laughs> Coming up next, foreigner waiting on a girl like you. <laughs> Perfect song. We're waiting for a girl like you. Apologies. Apologies, to foreigner, <laughs> friend of the show. So, so after he got back from Alaska, Hubbard used his lies to get his friend Robert McDonald, who was a state representative, to get him into the Navy. Ford sent a letter of recommendation for Hubbard describing him as, quote, one of the most brilliant men I have ever known. Ford later said that Hubbard had written the letter himself, and he said, quote, I don't know why Ron wanted a letter. I just gave him a letterhead and said, hell, you're the writer. You write it. I think the moral of the story thus far is that it pays to lie, and um, lying is a virtue. Yeah, well, this is, so. <laughs> this is the, you said, if religion was in his, um, in his mind. This Robert McDonald guy, they were actually like neighbors and they were just like drinking, they were drinking buddies and would just like shoot the shit and drink it and stuff. And, um, this is like the, this is the first time that it's documented that someone said like, if you want to make a million dollars, you should, you know, make a religion. They aren't wrong. He also had another quote around this time too, that I liked it. He said, um, he's talking about the Catholic church and he said, I don't know if I'm going to destroy the Catholic church or just build my own. I like that quote too. Balls on this guy. Yeah. 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 The confidence on this guy is Mm -hmm. insane. As with all cult leaders though. Yeah. So with no military experience at all, just based on this recommendation, Hubbard was made a Lieutenant in the U S Naval reserve on July 19th, 1941. And by November he was sent to New York for training as an intelligence officer. Oh, right before the war started. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) What an asset this guy's going to turn out to be. I bet. (laughs) So, according to Scientology, Hubbard fought in all five theaters during World War II, earned 21 medals, and was severely injured, being blinded by a flashbang, and then miraculously recovered due to his willpower after his family and friends all abandoned him. What are these five theaters in World War II? Like, he fought in Japan, he fought in Germany, he fought in France. Like, he was... He had battle in all the different things going on. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I would say there were three theaters of war in World War II, which was Europe, the Pacific, and then the Mediterranean. I don't know where they came up with five. Yeah, they claim five theaters. I'd, I'd be interested to see what they don't agree if with they that at all. Had anything listed for that? Yeah, they probably didn't. That's incorrect. Yeah, <laughs> I call that a falsehood. There were three. In reality, this is what is said about him by one of his superiors in the real military record is because Scientology has put out fake ones, which is the the lengths that they go to lie for this man are, are astounding. But this is a quote from the real, um, his real military records. This officer is not satisfactory for independent duty assignment. He is garrulous and tries to give impressions of his importance. He also seems to think he has an unusual ability in most lines. 
these characteristics indicate that he will require close supervision for satisfactory performance of any intelligence duty. It doesn't sound like a good little markup. <laughs> doesn't sound like you're fighting in all five theaters of uh, World War II. <laughs> no, it doesn't. <laughs> So this review landed Hubbard at a desk job for the Navy, but not long into this job, he used his bullshitting again to get command of a small submarine off the West Coast of the U.S. Not like Scientology says, where he was in the ocean by Japan and all this shit. It was on the West Coast of the U.S. So, But nonetheless, I mean, this is fucking wartime, and there's <laughs> clowns out there running a sub. Even yeah. if it's a small sub. Yeah. He's commanding, you know... Well, it's still quite terrifying. <laughs> yes. Well, we're going to see here in a second rogue. how this uh how he would just fuck this up spectacularly. On May 18th, 1943, Hubbard noticed something on the radar and just assumed that it was a Japanese submarine sneaking its way into US waters. He spent the next 68 hours unloading tons of rounds down into the ocean only to find out that he had been shooting at a uh, when what the military said a well-known magnetic deposit at the bottom of the ocean. So he's launching depth charges at a, a magnesium deposit. Yeah. Great. Before he could be disciplined for this shit, he opened fire on the Coronado Islands assuming that they were uninhabited and belonged to the US. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> What the fuck? <laughs> Why would you open fire then? He just decided that it, he was going to do a training exercise, and that was where he was going to do it. And was just going to. That's what he said was, or that's what it was described as. He said he was going to do a training exercise. It's either that, or he was just like, "Hey, I'm going to start fucking shooting some shit because I'm bored." I blew up all the magnesium. What am I going to do now? <laughs> what do I shoot now? <laughs> so uh, and this is the guy that celebrities still protect. Yes, and we'll see. Um, We'll see in part two. It's very ironic that celebrities protect him for how sex, how gross he is towards women in uh in in uh, homosexuality. Of course he is. Teaser for next week. Yeah. So obviously Mexico was not thrilled with this. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> this is like uh this is like borderline starting a little war of his own. They're firing at another country. <laughs> it does seem it's ridiculous. unbelievable. Yeah. Guys, a moron. Yeah, so he was relieved of his duties. Mm. Finally. Yeah. A report written after the incident rated Hubbard as unsuitable for independent duties and, quote, lacking in essential qualities of judgment, leadership, <laughs> and cooperation. The that is literally the definition of, of people who start cults, <laughs> right? Yeah. The report recommended that he be assigned to, quote, duty on a large vessel where he can be properly supervised. So he is not. How have they not just discharged? Yeah, him? I was going to say, how about like, a discharge? Yeah. Just, uh, just well, I get guess this guy out of here. Maybe World War II, they want people. I don't know. It's also worth noting, too, that he did not get 21 medals from World War II. He got three, and two of them were just basically participation ones, just for being there. <laughs> participation awards. <laughs> just for winning the war, basically. And the other one was like a for completing training kind of thing. He did not get 21 medals. So after being relieved back to a desk job, Hubbard went on to scam the VA for several years, for basically the rest of his life, um, for several fake ailments to get disability, including ulcers, malaria, and back pains. Malaria is a weird one. I don't. I don't know if that was just going around back then. Or right. What? It's like, oh, sounds good. Let me check this box. <laughs> it's like the office with when Dwight's doing the. Uh, the new insurance for them <laughs> and they're off the right down with, with ailments they have yeah. hot dog fingers. <laughs> <laughs> 
what do they say? Uh, anal fissures. And he's like, no one in the office has this. And then yeah. Kevin's like, some people. Have. <laughs> he is a myth. Didn't you have your vagina removed? Yeah. What did she say? I had a hysterectomy. Uh, yeah. I still have a vagina. <laughs> I want that covered. <laughs> Something like that. I might have butchered that line. So while he's scamming the the VA, he attended school again in Princeton. Uh, in 1945. However, he eventually reported sick to Oak Knoll Naval Hospital in Oakland. His complaints included headaches, rheumatism, conjunctivitis, pains in his sides, stomach aches, pains in his shoulder, arthritis, and hemorrhoids. Ah, damn. He's a sick person. Yeah, he was discharged from the hospital in uh, on December 4th, 1945, and transferred to inactive duty on February 17th, 1946. This whole next part is something that Scientology refuses to admit happened. They refuse that L. Ron Hubbard ever had a relationship with this woman named Sarah Northrup that we're going to get into. And since everything comes from Jack Parsons' journals and Aleister Crowley has wrote about this whole thing to um, to other people outside of Jack Parsons and and L. Ron Hubbard, they explain it away as Hubbard was sent in as a secret agent by the U.S. government to break up the world of black magic. <laughs> that sounds plausible to me. <laughs> so there's that. When the war was over, Hubbard completely abandoned his wife, Polly, and their two children and, and just stayed in California. In August of 1945, he became friends with a man named Jack Parsons and moved into Parsons' mansion in Pasadena. Parsons was a top rocket propulsion engineer at the California Institute of Technology and the founder of the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. The Jet Propulsion Laboratory played a big part in the, us being able to land on the moon. So all you fake moon landing nut jobs, <laughs> take wow. note of that. So needless to say, Jack Parsons was a pretty smart guy. Very intelligent yes. guy. Yeah, pretty successful. Yeah. When he wasn't working... Parsons was a devout follower of Aleister Crowley and the leader of a lodge of Crowley's Ordo Templi Orientis. He allowed people to live in his mansion to practice magic as long as they were, quote, atheists and those of a bohemian disposition. And he put out newspaper ads to look for people to come live with him and do this stuff. I might have taken him up on that. Go live in uh, Parsons' in. mansion for a while. Sure. It sounded like a pretty wild time living in his mansion for <laughs> what we're about to get into here. But. So it'll be like when uh, season two of Californication, when uh, Hank Moody's living in Lou Ashby's mansion, Dave. One of the best uh, seasons there is. That's one may might be the best. It's it's up there. Watch Californication if you haven't. Sexual activity was a shared process in this group. There are really no rules with how stuff went down because you weren't supposed to have these. Um, human emotions of jealousy and shit like that so it was a like a scientology am i right <laughs> scientology <laughs> yep <laughs> so hubbard started quickly started sleeping regularly with uh, parson's girlfriend sarah betty northrup she went as the nickname betty sometimes and even though there wasn't supposed to be jealousy in the group Parsons' writings show that he wasn't thrilled with their relationship because he felt like Hubbard was trying to take over the lodge. And it's weird because it's not like, um, I mean, other people were fucking his girlfriend. Everybody was fucking everybody. How many people lived in this mansion? There's a bunch of people living mm -hmm. there. So, I mean, everybody was fucking everybody. But when Hubbard showed up, it was almost like, a, here's a dude that's just as charismatic as I am. 
kind of thing. He felt a little threatened. By yeah, it. and it's like, oh shit, this guy could take over this whole thing. Power struggle. Yeah, but regardless, he saw in, in Hubbard that yeah, he was super charismatic, and his his magical abilities were equal to his in um like literal magical abilities. <laughs> Like being able to will things into existence, the confidence level. Magic, Dave. Magic. How are we going to do an Aleister Crowley episode if we're not uh, going <laughs> right, to right. entertain this? So he, he just pushed this jealousy aside because it's like, well, yeah, he's fucking my, my girl and he could probably. But so is everybody else. Yeah, and, and he could probably take this thing over, but me and him together, we could probably get some, get some shit done together. So this is what Parsons wrote. To, uh, to Aleister Crowley regarding L. Ron Hubbard. Hubbard is a gentleman. He has red hair, green eyes, is honest and intelligent, and we have become great friends. He moved in with me about two months ago, and although Betty and I are still friendly, she has transferred her sexual affection to Ron. Although he has no formal training in magic, he has an extraordinary amount of experience and understanding in the field. From some of his experiences, I deduce that he is in direct touch with some higher intelligence, possibly his guardian angel. He describes his angel as a beautiful winged woman with red hair whom he calls the Empress and who has guided him through his life and saved him many times. He is the most thelemic person I have ever met and is in complete accord with our own principles. So Parsons was cool with it. He sure. was on he was on board with That's like with what, you, what you said before like and he's doing some things but together yeah. I mean, this guy's got his shit together. He's a fan. At this point, Hubbard had become scribe in the group with Parsons conducting all the rituals. So basically, Hubbard was just uh, documenting everything. As they built strength in their magic, the two of them decided that they were going to do the Moonchild ritual. Aleister Crowley believed that the most powerful thing that someone practicing magic could do is bring about the Antichrist, which in the OTO was known as the Moonchild. So essentially, these two decided that they were going to create the Antichrist together. I get down with that, maybe. Yeah, and <laughs> it's not bad. The other uh, that makes sense. <laughs> it, Alistair Crowley writing to to some to another OTO member was not thrilled with this idea. He uh, basically said they were fucking idiots for for fucking around with stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> so the Moonchild was supposed to be born from the Scarlet Woman, who Crowley searched for for years but never found, and. The Scarlet Woman comes from a passage from the Book of Revelations. I was to say maybe that's Melisandre from Game of Thrones. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> that's actually what I thought of. <laughs> Guys, no one gets that joke. <laughs> Nobody gets that. And by no one, you mean everyone but you, right? Well, I think the people have spoken that not a lot of our <laughs> listeners watched uh, Game of Thrones. <laughs> they lived their lives. I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast full of names of blasphemy. Having seen heads and ten horns... And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup and a handful of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Well done. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, <laughs> I'll be honest, the scarlet woman sounds like a fun girl. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> So before Hubbard and Parsons could attempt to pull off the Moonchild ritual, they needed their Scarlet Woman, but lucky for them, there was a ritual to summon her, uh, which was the Babylon working ritual. I couldn't really find a ton specifically that went into this ritual, but Arthur Richard Metzger, he described it as, quote, 
Parsons used his, quote, magic wand to whip up a vortex of energies so the elemental would be summoned. Translated into plain English, Parsons jerked off in the name of <laughs> spiritual advancement, while Hubbard, referred to as the scribe in the diary of the event, scanned the astral planes for signs and visions. So this is like a Tuesday night for me and Dave. <laughs> Jerking off and scanning the astral plane. One of us, and then the other one scans the astral. It's not like we're together. Like we, I mean, we, have we some, go back and forth. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know. So apparently, Dave, we've been summoning the moon child and spirits and all that. All scanning the astral plane and no fun makes Jack a dull boy. So you got to go back and forth. Cyan. <laughs> yeah, so this whole scene is something else to, to picture. So they started the ritual on January 4th, 1946 at 9 p.m. And it lasted for 11 days. Well, he's he jerking the whole time? for 11 days? Well, there's other stuff going on here. There's <laughs> That's almost half my record. Yeah, they're doing... <laughs> they're... You, you know, it's so funny. You grew up thinking, you know... 1946 you're thinking of the boys coming back home from war and settling <laughs> you know the the, the 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 landscape and cashing in their gi bills and going to college meanwhile these guys are <laughs> fucking jerking off for two weeks in a row summoning demons it's not how you picture 1946 tale of two americas yeah <laughs> the first indication that something was working came on the second and third nights when a windstorm blew in and how it's written down as Parsons is like, yeah, like the wind's coming, but he kind of expected more. But then on the seventh day, Porter, like, I've been pulling on my meat for 11 days. <laughs> I am beat raw. And this is what you give me wind. <laughs> God damn. I need a little more than this. This cock probably hurts when yeah. the wind blows at this point. I am bleeding <laughs> off my foreskin right now. <laughs> at least I would imagine. I don't know what that's like. I don't do that. I'm straight edge and vegan, so. <laughs> so you don't jerk off at all? Of course not. That's beating your meat. I wouldn't do that. I'm vegan. <laughs> he doesn't believe in that. Yeah, I don't believe <laughs> it's in animal cruelty. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so on the seventh day, poltergeist activity started when Parsons was awoken at midnight by seven knocks and his lamp being thrown across the room. That's different. Yeah. Then on the 10th night, Hubbard was walking in the kitchen when he was hit in the shoulder by an invisible force, and he yelled out for Parsons, and they saw a brownish-yellow apparition standing in the kitchen that was seven feet tall. Parsons pulled out his magical sword, which was really a sword. It wasn't <laughs> a quote for his day. Well, I thought you were going to say he got hit in the shoulder with something else, like something gooey. No, he had a real sword. Uh, waved it at the apparition, and it quickly vanished. And again, this is all from Parsons' like journals. Parsons and Hubbard uh, scribing it, documenting okay. it, too. But yeah. Scientology refutes all of this. They say that it's they say it happened this stuff happened but he was really undercover, was undercover. to break up this whole black man clearly he couldn't be this stupid <laughs> is what they're saying got it so four days after the ritual ended hubbers and parsons went out to the desert to just kind of relax and meditate because parsons was getting pissed nothing was happening they're like you know spent 11 days doing all this crazy shit we're swinging swords at ghosts and whatever well, and nothing's happening a seven foot tall apparition appeared and nothing's happening well they wanted the scarlet woman <laughs> I mean, it's I not the fucking scarlet woman say Dave. nothing's happening <laughs> <laughs> so parsons was all of a sudden overcome by a sense of relaxation and accomplishment and according to the journals he turned in uh and told hubbard he said it is done and when they returned back to the house 
for real, it's kind of weird. It, it worked. A red-haired woman named Marjorie Cameron was there waiting, wanting to join the OTO, and she was more than happy to uh, to give birth to the Antichrist. She was all on board for that. She wanted that to happen. She was ready to go as soon as possible. Hmm. It's a little strange. It kind of worked. Make of it what you will. Well, like I said, I don't know I how get- we're supposed to do an Alistair Crowley episode. <laughs> <laughs> it is about willing things to happen, and you're right. It- it did happen. There was no Antichrist, but there was a red-haired woman waiting there for him. You're right. And they did not find this woman ahead of time. No. I don't think Jack Parsons would be bullshitting. I mean, he was all in on this stuff. So. He just had a magical sword. He did have many magical swords. It sounds to go like. for 11 days, you better have a fucking magical sword. <laughs> Please. Non-stop jerk fest. Rookie talk. <laughs> You know what's funny too is that there's other accounts from from this time because like he said he was jealous of of Elrond that um that like people would catch him in his bedroom at night completely naked doing um like just yelling out doing like these magic spells because he's trying to get back at Elrond because he was pissed and he was banging Sarah just completely out of control. <laughs> What a beta cook. It's his house, man. <laughs> Fucking throw Elrond out the door. No, but, but, he, it, but it was an open household, right? You can't you can't stop he, it, right? He can't because he would have he would have shown that he was uh had those human feelings and everyone would have been like, the fuck are you doing? There's no jealousy in this mansion. I, it's just such a silly scenario. But so since Marjorie was was down to be the mother of the Antichrist. In February of 1946, they they started to conduct the Moonchild ritual, and they started it out by chanting, Glory unto the Scarlet Woman, Babylon, the mother of abomination that rideth upon the beast, for she has spilt her blood in every corner of the earth, and lo, she had mingled in the cup of a whoredom. So yeah, they chanted that for about uh, 15 to 20 times in a row. Nice. Get it to well, get Dave, it go going. ahead. 15, 20 times. Let's <laughs> do it again. Can you yeah. just put that on the, on the board? No, there I'll live each time. <laughs> just loop it. Can you loop that? <laughs> and we won't lo- lose listeners that way. <laughs> <laughs> and just Parsons' bedroom was like, it was wild. It had like these big fucking pillars and there's like this altar. I mean, it was, his bedroom was decked out in, in the whole ritualistic stuff. So after this chanting was done, Hubbard stayed at the altar while Parsons had sex with Marjorie to impregnate her with the moon child. Parsons was completely convinced that it had worked, and in nine months he would be face-to-face with the Antichrist. Nice. Boom, that's it. It's exciting. Yeah. Is the Antichrist David Miscavige by any by any chance? It could be possible. I think there's... Wow, I solved it already. Possibly. All right, well, that's mm. it for Scientology then. <laughs> We solved that that riddle. Jack had the Antichrist. He, he thought that that fully worked. Uh, but Hubbard had had something else in the back of his head this whole time. And this just completely goes over my head as to why they were trying to summon. At the same time as they're trying to summon the Antichrist and they get done doing it, Hubbard comes to Parsons with this idea of buying and flipping yachts. it just seems like the natural order of things right sure why not what else are you doing summon the antichrist and then uh go flip some yachts together (laughs) at this point sarah northrop had basically left parsons for hubbard so 
this business of flipping yachts involved the three of them. They they <laughs> they partnered up on this, and Jack Parsons was the only one with any money. I mean, he was the only successful person in yeah, this whole situation. Um, so he works at the fucking Jet Propulsion Lab. <laughs> yeah, pretty well established, successful human being. So he put um he put ten thousand dollars towards the business, which in nineteen forties money that's a fuck ton of money. Sure, to go buy the yachts and. He's like, you know, all right, here's the money. Go and come back, you know, bring the boat back and we'll figure it out. And Hubbard and Sarah just took off with the fucking money, bought a boat and <laughs> sailed to Miami. See ya, Poor Jack. Parsons guy, man. Can't catch a break. Do you think they were listening to Yacht Rock on Sirius XM as they sailed away? Dave, what else do you listen to? Little Christopher <laughs> Cross. Sailing takes me away. <laughs> I was thinking more Enya. Sail away, sail away, sail away. <laughs> I love that sail Yacht Rock away, sail away. Somehow Parsons tracked them down in Florida. When he caught up with them, he's like, hey, where, you know, like, where's my boat? Like, Motherfuckers. <laughs> what the fuck's happening? I believe you have something that belongs to me. <laughs> now you're cooking my boat. Or cooking. Now you're cooking my boats, <laughs> my yachts. <laughs> you cucked my girlfriend and my yacht. <laughs> cooking <laughs> i like cooking better you're cooking my yacht so so they agreed to go get the boat for him and like and dock it for him i just picture this as like I, like something from like it's always sunny or something i don't like they they dock they tell him like hey jack we're gonna we're gonna dock the boat for you just relax just went on the dock go around They're like yeah, yeah, yeah whatever you know we'll get you your boat go around and then the fucking boat just sails past the dock, and they just go out into the ocean. And Jack Parsons is just standing on the dock like, what the fuck? Motherfucker, they got me again. So stupid. But lucky for uh, lucky for Jack, he decided to bring his magic robe with him that night. And and in the in the hotel room, he drew a pentagram on the floor and invoked Bartzabel, the spirit of Mars. And whether this really worked or not is whatever, but a storm blew in that night and forced Hubbard and Sarah back to the port where Jack was waiting and took the boat back from him. He's just standing there with like, his hands on his hips. With his like, magic robe on. With his robe, like, <laughs> welcome back, motherfuckers. Can I have my boat now? And with this, he decided to give up on the whole magic uh, approach to this issue and filed a lawsuit against them, which was settled out of court. <laughs> I feel like we're talking about a whole different story right yeah, now. Yeah, this is a ridiculous like, postscript this is, to this story. This is worse than any sidebar Dave and I have ever <laughs> went on that completely distracted from the actual story. It's hilarious. It's so crazy. Like we were talking before we recorded. You can watch the Scientology documentaries and, you know, it's real, it's wacky. You're like, what the, this is fucking crazy. But then, like, when you really dig into L. Ron Hubbard's biography, it's like, Jesus, this guy's, <laughs> like, this, this guy's story is out of control. But this is just like Catholics who are practicing Catholics that don't know the history of the Catholic Church and all the fucking nonsense that they've done over, you know, or how it originated. Same thing. If you say so. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, let's be honest. Most Catholics don't know the history of Catholicism I would 100% agree. Yeah. I agree with that. Before we keep going with Elrond, just to wrap stuff up on Jack Parsons, he was stuck with this yacht that he couldn't really use because he lived in the <laughs> desert and marjorie cameron was pregnant and super attached to him which he didn't love that at this point um and the antichrist was not born 
And soon after, he blew himself up in a nitroglycerin accident in his oh, garage. Damn. So, so Jack's just kind of... So he's like a great, smart mind. He's done a lot of good. And then he fucking gets caught up with Hubbard and yeah. things just go to shit after that. He's just trying to be fucking cool, do some magic. and uh, So unlike the Babylon working ritual, this was not a happy ending. <laughs> it was not, no. <laughs> it's a shame. It did lead to us landing on the moon, though. So Well, it's debatable. It's a bit Dave. of a legacy That's debatable, there. Dave. I, there are people I don't that think tell it is we debatable. never landed on the moon. Well, those people would be incorrect, Mike. Coming soon to Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com slash Necronomapod. It's the best deal in town. That it is. Five bucks a month. Get you a ton of shit. Bonus episodes. Get you bonus episodes in a Discord chat with us. So on August 10th, 1946, Hubbard and Sarah Northrup got married while Hubbard was still married to Polly, which he hadn't seen in years. I mean, he was over in you know World War II. How do you do that? Just leave your whole family like that? Some guys, man, they can mm-hmm. just do that. Yeah, I don't know. You just it's like, fuck that. I'm not going back. I'm going to stay here with super hot, summoning the Antichrist, right. doing magic Sarah Northrup, and I'm not going back to Polly Grubb. She was super hot. Was Sarah Northrup an attractive young lady? Yeah. Oh, was she? All of his mistresses, and yeah, they were Hubbard's all Hubbard's mistresses all throughout mm-hmm. his life. Yeah. yeah, they were all super attractive. God damn. Yeah. Yep. He learned from the pussy whisperer, as we <laughs> learned way back he when he did. was 15. Boom. That was my nickname in college. Pussy whisperer? Yep. Obvious reasons. <laughs> You worked at a cat shelter. I did. That's the only obvious reason I could think I did. of. I was real good with them. We adopted so many cats out of there. It was good. We truly made a difference. So, well, it, it wasn't until 1947 that Polly learned that he had remarried because he showed up back in Montana for like a brief period of time with Sarah Northrup, and they like tried to live in the same area briefly, and his family and everyone's like, "What the fuck are you doing?" You know, like. Mm. We haven't seen you in years, and you just roll in here with uh, with this new wife, and we're supposed to be cool with it, you know. And they're his grandparents. It's either his grandparents or his parents are like, you know, get the fuck out of here. We've been taking care of your wife and your two kids this whole time, and you're just out, you know, summoning the Antichrist and <laughs> watching your buddy jerk off, and <laughs> right. doing whatever it is. Listen to yacht rock, you know? <laughs> right? Hubbard agreed to divorce Polly that year, and the marriage was dissolved with Polly giving custody of their kids. And he would never see, um, he went back briefly when his mom died, but other than that, he never saw them again. We'll get into his son Nibs comes back in the picture, probably in part three, but anybody else, they never saw him again. Just completely forgot about him. Wow. Great guy. So even though Hubbard had just married Sarah with all that, the Navy shit with him bombing magnetic deposits and just being a complete failure in his first marriage being a failure, even though it was his fault. He was pretty depressed with life. And this is where the true precursor to Dianetics comes in. And it's this document titled Affirmations. In my opinion, this is like one of the most fascinating aspects of the, just from like the magic aspect of this, like willing this stuff into existence, like being so confident in these things. Um, there's no evidence that he actually made these into any sigils, any of these statements or anything to like really push it forward with the, from a chaos magic point of view, but it's really fascinating. And it's, some of it's a really fascinating look into his mind because throughout it, he lies to himself, admits his lies. And at the same time continues those lies to himself. It's a really strange document. 
but it was laid out in three courses. So that's where you get the precursor to Dianetics. So it's like a, it's like the, the, this, his bullshit is like morphing into this, uh, like this step-by-step program. How is this stuff published? This comes from Sarah Northrop. Scientology refuses that this exists. That this, really? This document, it does not exist to them. Sarah Northrop doesn't exist to them either. They refuse to admit that he was ever even married to her. Yeah. Or, I mean, they do have kids later on here, um, but they, they refuse that, that whole uh, scenario. Mm. So this is uh, course one of... Uh of Hubbard's, uh, what was the name of this course? Affirmations. The, of his affirmations. This is course one of his affirmations. And we actually we recruited some friends to help us with some of these readings. So they're going to help us get through this because there's there's quite a bit here. So, um, sir, go ahead. Take it away. I can write. My mind is still brilliant. Masturbation was no sin or crime. I do not need to have any ulcers anymore. <laughs> I am fortunate in losing Polly and my parents, for they never meant well by me. I believe in my gods and spiritual things. My magical work is powerful and effective. The numbers 7, 25, and 16 are not unlucky or evil for me. I am not bad to look upon. I'm not susceptible to colds. These words and commands are like fire, and I will sear themselves into every corner of my being, making me happy and well and confident forever. And so that was course one, right? And those are there's some interesting things in there. There's some there's some nonsense about not being susceptible to colds, and um, <laughs> I'm not. What do you want from me? <laughs> this whole thing about the seven, twenty five, and sixteen. So did he just read these to himself or like, how did all this work and come together? Yeah. So like from a chaos, my limited knowledge of a K like from a chaos magic's point of view would be you would write this and really focus on one of these and then you would make it into a sigil and go from there. And to make it into a sigil, you would cross out all the vowels and then cross out all of the um, repeating letters and then draw a circle and make a symbol out of the remaining letters. But these seem more like um, just what, like the affirmations, like he's just like really focusing on these statements. But these eventually got published, right? No, these are hand. This is a this is a handwritten document from never published it. It never okay from Sarah Northrop. Okay, course two. Your eyes are getting progressively better. They became bad when you used them as an excuse to escape the Naval Academy. You have no reason to keep them bad. Your stomach trouble you used as an excuse to keep the Navy from punishing you. You are free of the Navy. You are hip as a pose. You have sound hip. It never hurts. Your shoulder never hurts. Your foot was an alibi. The injury is no longer needed. Testosterone blends easily with your own hormones. You have no fear of what any woman may think of your bed conduct. You know you are a master. You know they will be thrilled. You can come many times without weariness. Many women are not capable of pleasure and sex, and anything adverse they say or do has no effect ever upon your pleasure uh this next one i'm gonna read i'm just gonna say it that this is probably the most disgusting way i've ever heard described coming into a woman that i've ever heard in my life (laughs) i'm just gonna gonna make that point real quick you have no fear if they conceive what if you what if they do you do not care pour it into them and let fate decide i've never heard 
pour it into them described for, <laughs> in, in that manner, but whatever. <laughs> you could tell all the romantic tales you wish, but you know which ones were lies. You have enough real experience to make anecdotes forever. Stick to your true adventures. Yes, a masturbation does not injure or make insane. Your parents were in error. Everyone masturbates. You have no urge to talk about your Navy life. You do not like to talk of it. You never illustrate your point with bogus stories. It is not necessary for you to lie to be amusing and witty. You like to have your intimate friends approve of and love you for who, what you are. <laughs> this desire to be loved does not amount to a psychosis. Your psychology is advanced and true and wonderful. It hypnotizes people. It predicts their emotions, for you are their ruler. Material things are yours for the asking. Men are your slaves. You will make fortunes rotten. You will live to be 200 years old. Did Annalise just <laughs> show up? Possibly. God damn. It's the greatest hits tonight. <laughs> you will always look young. Money will flat upon you. <laughs> Shit on the ball. <laughs> Go back to uh, Amityville. For Amityville, available in the archives. <laughs> you want more of Mafia Mike? We don't like him. He's a bit much. So the ones that are extremely interesting in here are the ones where he acknowledges the fact that he is a compulsive liar. Like he's telling himself to, to stop doing it almost like he can't. Like this, you can tell all the romantic tales you wish, but you know which ones were lies. You have enough real experience to make antidotes forever. Stick to your true adventures. Like it's almost like stop lying. You know, you don't have to lie anymore. Stop lying. But it's, it's a really this. He's just writing himself a bunch of little like motivational talks. And and in a really primitive form, that is what chaos magic is. Um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that, that that stuff is really interesting with this. These next ones in course two are regarding the, the so-called guardian angel that Parsons wrote to Aleister Crowley about. Nothing can intervene between you and your guardian. She cannot be displaced because she is too powerful. She does not control you. She advises you. The most thrilling thing in your life is your love and consciousness of your guardian. She has copper red hair, long braids, a lovely Venusian face. A white gown belted with jaded squares. She wears gold slippers. Uh, yes, you can talk with her and audibly hear her voice above all others. <laughs> you can do automatic writing whenever you wish. You do not care what comes out on paper when your guardian dictates. So, yeah, I don't know what the whole guardian thing's about, really. And you think he's just a very, uh, a very mentally ill individual at this point. Yeah, I would agree with that. So the third course was just titled The Book. You are radiant like the sunlight. You can read music. You are a magnificent writer who has thrilled millions. Ability to drop into a trance state at will. Lack of necessity of following a pulp pattern. You did a fine job in the Navy. No one there is now out to get you. You're psychic. Yes, you did not masturbate because my whole sister Kazakhstan will give you a happy ending. <laughs> You do not know anger. Your patience is infinite. Snakes are not dangerous to you. There are no snakes in the bottom of your bed. You believe implicitly in God. You have no doubts of the all-powerful. You believe your guardian perfectly. Um. <laughs> so do you remember uh, Saturday Night Live, the Al Franken, Stuart Smalley? Yeah. Like, that's what this reminds me of. 
I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. <laughs> like daily <laughs> affirmations. Right, yes. That's the first thing I thought of with this. <laughs> yeah, they're very. You bring that up now. We could have just all read this in Stuart Smalley voices. <laughs> it's a really. Uh, it's really strange. There and there's a lot about masturbation in there. Someone obviously beat it into his head somewhere in ah, life. Beat it into his head. <laughs> I see what you did. <laughs> Ian told the joke. <laughs> that it was bad to masturbate. You really said the words beat it and didn't make that connection? I did not. <laughs> <laughs> I like the snakes one, too. That's pretty... It's extremely random for the rest of this whole... Uh, this whole the the whole document and a whole snakes are dangerous to you they're not in the bottom of your bed obviously there's a fear of snakes yeah. being in his bed well, fuck now that you brought up they might be in my bed i'm a little bit afraid <laughs> so with this idea now in his mind of separating these ideas into courses he needed to add one more thing to it which was hypnotism and jack parsons had taught hubbard how to do hypnosis and he was really fucking good at it he could hypnotize people without them even knowing he was doing it. And there, it was said that he could just be like, all right, you know, talking to somebody, just be like, one, two, three, snap his fingers, and he had them. Is that real, Mike? Of course not. <laughs> so it sounds like shallow hell, right? Yeah. Essentially. <laughs> Isn't that your only, the only Jack Black movie only you like? Jack Black movie I like. That's why you didn't have Tropic Thunder on your Tom Cruise list. Jack Black is awful. Jack Black is hilarious in Tropic Thunder. <laughs> he is... You've seen it, right? Haven't I like you? Tropic Thunder. I do not like Jack Black. That's a great movie. I like all the. I like School of Rock, Shallow Hal. What else? Orange County. Hilarious. I liked um, Saving Silverman. Yeah, I like that movie. It's a great movie too. I like Jack Black. I, I understand how people don't though. He can be a little much, and he's kind of the same character in everything. Terrible. <laughs> Stop that. So the the skill of hypnotism would be a huge success of Dianetics. And he found the perfect group to practice it on, the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society. Sounds like a bunch of neckbeards. Bunch of nerds. <laughs> Which there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with nerds. I watch pro wrestling. I get it. Who am I to make fun of anyone? <laughs> and, man, these guys in this group, just like everybody else throughout life, really loved Hubbard with all his stories and bullshit. And it's just fun to be around when it, when it came to that aspect of him. And they thought the hypnosis stuff was super fun. Like he would, there were stories about him making a guy think that he was holding two ta- two kangaroos in his hands, like just doing goofy shit. You know, like just, they were just, <laughs> like they were just having a good time doing it. One person in particular that Hubbard singled out to hypnotize was this guy named William Cox. Under hypnosis, Hubbard told Cox that at 2 p.m. the next day, he would drop whatever he was doing and meet Hubbard at the corner of Wilshire and Lucas. When Cox got there the next day, he found that he could not take his hands out of his pockets until Hubbard told him he could. When Hubbard let him take his hands out of his pockets, he told him to grab a metal rail, which Hubbard told him was blazing hot. And this pole wasn't hot. It was just, you know, under hypnosis. But Cox started to scream in fear and pain until Hubbard laughed, patted him on his shoulder, like took him out of the hypnosis and was like, all right, go home. That's not funny at all. Right. (laughs) Go home. Go home. Well, so my understanding of hypnosis was that you could never force someone to do something against their will like that. And that's exactly what this is. Yeah. Without even like hypnotizing them. You're just snapping your fingers and controlling their mind. Yeah. I mean, it's... um. This is the fakest version of hypnosis. <laughs> well, it's something that he was able to use throughout this throughout this whole thing. And Dianetics is a very hypnotic, uh, hypnotic practice. Right. Well, I'm interested to discuss that then because I have thoughts. 
so how the story goes is William Cox didn't remember this at all. And it wasn't until the group started fucking around with hypnotic regression stuff that it came out. And then they all like, they put William Cox under hypnotic regression. And he's like talking about this weird experience with L Ron Hubbard with him, like not letting him take his hands out of his pockets and stuff. They're like, what the fuck? So they all started to wonder like, was Hubbard hypnotizing all of them without them knowing it? And they quickly found out that he was and this whole messing around with hypnosis thing wasn't fun anymore yeah i bet (laughs) what the fuck's happening he was kicked out of out of this group but now he had with the affirmations the in this confidence of um of the hypnosis he was ready to launch uh to launch this new science that he had been that he had been kicking around and that's where we'll pick up next week we'll get into dianetics the fall of dianetics and uh, in Scientology and the itself. the birth of Scientology. Yep. Was it peer-reviewed Dianetics? It was. Really? By one doctor. He had one doctor on his side. <laughs> and he hypnotized that doctor. <laughs> doctor couldn't even take his hands out of his pockets <laughs> to sign the documents. Yeah, he had the editor of Astounding Science Fiction and one doctor on his side. Well, so that was a lot of information we just learned. A lot of good stuff. It's a lot to digest. A lot, of, a lot of pre-work there, but I think it's important in, in laying the groundwork of all of this fucking nonsense that's going to come next. I don't disagree. Yeah. Like with all cults, it's, um, it's a slow process. It doesn't... Mm-hmm. The belief systems never just happen overnight, you know? Well, and I think seeing the background and kind of where the leader of all that comes from, you know, speaks a lot to the actual cult itself. Yeah. Well, and like we said... failures and then seeing where they you know, the difference between his biography and then Scientology's biography. Yeah. That's the biggest thing with, with his story specifically is like, um, this is all, like we said in the beginning, this is an extension of his mind, this, this whole thing. But most of the time by biographies of cult leaders aren't really besides Jim Jones. It's not like this huge, usually a huge part of the story, but with them, it's because they put him up as this Messiah figure that accomplished all these great things. And, They'll like die by those fat those statements. That's that's not true. None of it is true. It's just all lies. It's not science. It, no, it is not it's science. Not science. It's not science, Dave. It's religion. <laughs> you believe in it because you have faith. We still got a long. We got a long road. We got a long road to we'll go. We'll save down. that debate for another day. <laughs> we got a long ways to go before they get recognized as a religion. So that's Scientology Part One. Yep. I hope everyone got- sticks with us, man, because it's a it's a journey. It's a lot. Oh, they'll stick with us. They'll stick with us. This was entertaining. It's only going to get more entertaining from here. Really? I predict. All right. Ian, anything else you want to close up or wrap up with Scientology? Any last thoughts? Uh, anything to, uh, Anything you want people to check out before we get to the next part? You can try and read Dianetics if you want. Good fucking it's, luck. It's, on, it's absolute nonsense. Yeah, I don't know. Is That's, there any place specifically they should go for that, or no? Just kind of Google that shit. Steal that shit off the internet somewhere. Don't give <laughs> oh, the fucking actual, yeah, Don't give them any money. Yeah. But I mean, like, you can't just look it up on a website, like, to get an yeah, overall. Yeah, I mean, there's some stuff out there there. You can Google the tone scale or uh, or just Dianetics. And so if get, you want to get a head start on next yeah. week, Google Dianetics. Yeah, if you want to actually try and read the book, steal that shit. Don't, don't give them any money. And if you want to know how to steal it, hit Ian up. I'm sure he's got <laughs> his sources and websites. Yeah, yeah. Amazon still sells it. Amazon don't, sells don't, all of don't it. Don't buy that book. No, but you can buy. I was looking today. You can get them all prime shipping. Sure, you can go to the library and find it. That's true too. Yeah, go to your local library. Support your local library. If you're not, then that's on shame on you. Dave, you got anything to wrap up part one? No, 
I uh, thinking of converting after this first episode. Is Borat going to come back, perhaps, for future episodes? <laughs> I, was just, I was just trying to keep up with you and your amazing. <laughs> no, that's not true. Amazing uh, cache of voices. <laughs> you know me. Also, I don't do voices. We actually have guests that come into the show. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Sorry, I don't associate with those numbskulls. <laughs> So special shout out to uh, the new patrons this week. We got a fucking lot of them. We had a good week, boys. Yeah. We had a, a damn good week. Very encouraging. Thank you to all of the other patrons who've been trying to push and uh, recommend us to other people to sign up. The and, few, uh, the proud, the patrons. Boom. <laughs> shout out to Amanda Sullivan, Danielle Alarcon, Grasshopper Groovy, Heather Dobson, Mr. Muggs, Blaine Powers, Jordan Brunicreef. Raji Nat, Avery Mansell, Whitney Lane, and Andrusha Post. Good job. Ian, what you got for us? Um, for iTunes, I have one for Braden R75, Stanky Bitch. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Kenneth Mark Hoover, Nina Vieira, Ryan F88, C. Wagey, Catherine 0445, AF Coy, Dismantle Design, and I'm His Forever. Thank you guys for the awesome reviews. We had some really uh, really good ones this week. We had a lot of new patrons, new reviews, and some new, uh, quite a few social media shout-outs, Dave. I think we're doing great. Let's hear them. Uh, From Twitter, the Quantum Sniper 13, Whitney Lane, Nyarlath Otep from Instagram, Close the Hatch, Kata the Demon, Amy Riggs, Shannon Martinez, and Taylor Kins. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Yep. Um, we have merchandise available on Amazon. Just go to Amazon.com, search Necronomapod. You'll find all that information there. I believe it's still in our Instagram uh, profile or our bio, too. You can find the link there and our pinned tweet on Twitter. We are also at Patreon.com slash Necronomapod if you're interested in tre- checking out those uh, bonus episodes. And then find us on the social medias at Necronomapod. Reach out to us. If you're a patron, hit us up on the Discord. Um, if you're not a patron and you want to chat with us, just hit us up on the social medias. We love hearing from you guys. All right. You guys ready for a cool down beer? Cheers. Cheers.